This is a Federal News Network podcast. Every year, the Pentagon develops a global force management plan to determine how it will deploy assets around the world. But DOD's regional combatant commanders are allowed to ask for more, and they often do. A bipartisan group of House members is now concerned. Those additional requests for forces have become so routine, they're hurting military readiness by stretching the forces too thin. In a new letter to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, they ask several questions about whether it's time to rethink DOD's force management practices. Virginia Republican Rob Whitman, who signed the letter, discussed it with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. I don't know how much you can say about this without getting into sensitive and classified stuff, but but I'm curious if you can give us some sense of the scale of the problem that you're identifying here in terms of how often the department is deviating from the global force management plan with these RFFs that you're talking about and whether or not that's waxed and waned over the years. Well, we have seen cycles where there's been a higher than average number of requests for forces. The challenge has been, how do we make sure that the global force management plan is more reflective of the reality that we have to deal with? And that is the demand to generate readiness today to counter the risks that we see before us than in the past. And when you see this and you see it continued, then I think the question has to be asked about what are the risks that we are facing today? And if we have so many requests for forces that are in addition to the global force management plan, then are the global force management plans really reflective of where we are today? And shouldn't we be asking the questions of the risk that we are trying to address today versus the risk that we will have to address in the future? And the resources it takes to generate readiness today and the resources it takes to modernize the force for the readiness we have to generate, you know, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. Those are the fundamental questions that have to be asked. There's always a tension between the combatant commanders and the service branch chiefs about generating readiness today versus readiness in the future. And the joint staff is sort of that adjudicator to say, okay, we understand what comes in today and what we need to do do for the future. But I think the question becomes, how do we address the issues that appear today to be increasing based upon requests for forces in relation to the global force management plans and the continued effort to modernize? And there is a little bit of creative tension there. So our intention was to ask that fundamental question. Are we doing everything in the right way to address the challenges and risks we have today and what we're doing to address the risks of a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. Yeah, and I, I get all those points, and I think everybody kind of intuitively understands that if you're routinely using your forces more than you planned over and over again every year, that creates lots of different kinds of problems. But what I'm really trying to get after is, do you have a sense that you can share with us whether those requests for forces exceed the the programmed management plan by by 50%. I'm trying to get a sense of the scale here. Well, I don't know that you can necessarily elaborate on it by scale, but I think where you can elaborate on it is with the pure numbers uh, because each of the requests are different in its, in its scope. But I would say if you combined all of them, the number of requests for forces and the scale of each individual one That at least in my mind, and I want to emphasize this is anecdotally because I'm looking at things in relation to what what we have seen in the past. I would say anecdotally, it does appear as though the demand signal coming from the COCOMs today 
is significantly greater than it has been in any time in, in recent history. I'm wondering if 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 you have a sense of sort of the service chief's culpability here. I, I you know we we all remember after the McCain and Fitzgerald incidents, a lot of the after action commentary was, well, look, the Navy just needs to learn how to say no. Are are the services saying no and being overruled by the Secretary of Defense, or that do they have a part to play in this? Well, I think the service branch chiefs have a part to play in this. Uh, the, the the Joint Staff is normally pretty good at parsing through these things and adjudicating the tensions between the demand for readiness today and the demand for modernization for the future. I do think, though, that what they are seeing is is a greater element of risks that we face today than probably we have in recent history. Because remember, historically, the risks have been dominated by one country like Russia, uh, and then today we see ourselves facing threats from Russia, from China, from Iran, from North Korea. So so the number of threats build and the nature and complexity of the threats, I think, are different and greater than they ever have been in the past. So I, I think that that's where the the, the, the current uh, force availability is is causing the service branch chiefs to look at, you know, how do we adapt to what we see today in the demand signal? And then how do we make sure that we have the readiness that we need in the future? I think they're all looking at this pretty creatively. I know that as I look at uh, uh, General Berger, the commandant of the Marine Corps, looking at this and, and, and with his planning guidance changing essentially how the Marine Corps is going to operate, I think that's an effort to say we're, we're going to operate a little bit differently because we know we can't continue to have the same demand signal today while we modernize for the future. And we can't use, you know, the old paradigm on how we counter the threats from China like we have uh, during the, the previous efforts on on conventional warfare uh, doctrine. So I, I, I think that they're I think they're looking at it outside the box and looking at it in creative ways. And as I have stated, the the biggest thing that I believe that they all have to address is that the reality of the challenge ahead is not just in how do we counter the Chinese, but we have to be able to do more with our resources than the Chinese do with theirs or the Russians do with theirs. So we have to get more per our dollar than the Chinese get per their yuan or the Russians get per their ruble. Because we are not going to be able to do like we did in the Cold War and just out-resource our opponents. We have multiple opponents on different fronts. So it means we have to be smarter with the resources that we have. We have to do much more in partnering with other nations and looking at operating jointly, not just within the forces of the United States, but also with other nations. And I think those are some of the questions that this uh, request for forces will beg. So when you have a request for forces, instead of continuing to come back to the Pentagon, I think the question should naturally take you, okay, if we have need more forces, let's say in the Indo-Pacific, what are we doing to go to our allies and say, hey, by the way, you know, the demand signal that's coming here is significantly greater. What can you do as partners or as allies to help us with that? Because we can't meet the entire demand signal ourselves. And by the way, as we modernize, how are we modernizing in a way that leverages the force structure, not only from the United States, but for other nations? Because we will not have the resources to do this all by ourselves. 
I guess the last thing I wonder in our last couple minutes here is, you know, the, the letter makes an interesting point that there's there's kind of an incentives problem here, and that the, the the combatant commanders themselves really have no incentive to suppress their appetites and and decline the opportunity to request forces for for relatively low priority problems. Is that is that a problem that needs to be fixed by Congress or anyone else, or should we just accept that? They're always going to want more, and it's up to the building to to deal with that. Well, I think they're always going to be faced with the challenges today. So, the, you know, their their daily intelligence reports tells them of the threats, and then they have to look at the force that they need to generate to, to do that. I, that's a natural part of their job. I think they know intuitively what they need to do to counter that threat in into the future. So I think the question for the Pentagon becomes, do we – do we require that the COCOMs do a little more in forward thinking uh, as they confer with the service branch chiefs than they have in the past? Uh, and maybe that'll inform a little bit more about the global force management plans. Uh, I don't know that you necessarily need to change how they develop those plans because we want them to be candid about what they think the threats are today and what we need to counter those threats. But I do think that they have to be part of the discussion to say, okay, uh, we understand what you need to do to counter the threats today, but where do you think that the United States can take on reasonable risk in order to devote the resources necessary for the future of the force? And I think that they will give uh, some pretty thoughtful and intuitive insights as to where they believe uh, that balance can take place, because that's what it's going to be. It's going to have to be uh, a balance, and they're going to have to accelerate uh, the changes that are needed needed to modernize our capabilities uh, to make sure that we're going to be relevant in, in overcoming uh, the abilities and threats from our adversaries. If, if not, we're not going to be prepared to compete, to deter, and to win in that future battle space. So I, I do think that the combatant commanders do need to be engaged in a way that's a little more forward thinking and to get their thoughts on, you know, how do we strike that proper balance? Sorry, I lied. One, one more question. I just wanted to ask quickly about the timing of this letter. Should we, should we read anything into that? Is it just a matter of a new administration coming in, coming in and getting ready to do a new QDR, or are things especially bad right now in terms of these RFFs? I, I, think, that, I think that this has been uh, something that's been developing over time. I don't think it's unique to this administration, but I do think there's an opportunity as this administration comes in to be able to ask these questions. And that's why uh, we believe, again, a, a bipartisan group of us believe that uh, the questions needed to be asked now. So as the folks in the Pentagon are doing their evaluation, as every new Secretary of Defense uh, does, that they look at all of these particular issues in how they balance the modernization efforts with force generation and readiness generation today. And, and now's the time to ask that, because if you as you put forward your strategy, you're going to have to make sure you reflect both of those elements in what your strategy is going forward. Virginia Congressman Rob Whitman is ranking member of the House Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview and a link to the letter at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic 
Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide 
in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet. Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, 
just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.